Good evening. <laughs> My name is Nina Mamakunian. I'm the literature librarian here at Geisel Library, and we are thrilled to have the Eileen Miles reading from the new writing series here in the library tonight. Thank you all for coming. Um, I'm not going to stand up here too long. I'm going to let our speaker speak. <laughs> um, without further ado, we have Professor Brandon Salm. <laughs> Hello, hello. Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to the new writing series. Thank you, Nina. Um, thank you to the library. Uh, this is uh, the first time this quarter that we're hosting uh, or having an event here in the library. So I want to thank uh, Nina and the library uh, for hosting us and giving us this beautiful, large uh, room. Um, it's great. So welcome, everyone. Um, as Nina says, I'm, I'm Brandon Sam. I'm a professor here in the literature department. I'm so excited to be here tonight with you. I'm so excited to have the poet, essayist, uh, novelist, art critic, and uh, professor emeritus uh, here at UCSD, uh, Eileen Miles, here with us. So, uh, in a moment, I'm going to invite uh, Valentina and Allison two of our wonderful graduate students in our MFA program to introduce Eileen. But for, before we do that, I just wanted to uh, make a couple quick announcements. First of all, if you have a, one of these, if we could just turn those off, I need to do it too. So I'll do it with you. Silence or airplane mode, however you do it, turn it off. It's great. Throw it outside. Um, also, I wanted to announce that we have uh, one more reading in our series for this particular quarter. It's next Wednesday, November 15th, and it's going to be b back in the literature building in the Disserto room uh, at 4.30 on Wednesday. And it's Chiwan Choi, who's a poet and novelist who's coming down from Los Angeles. And so it's going to be a really fantastic event. So please mark your calendars, and we hope to see you in the Literature Building next uh, Wednesday at 4.30 for Chiwan Choi. Uh, a few thank yous. Uh, again, I, I just thanked Nina and the library. I want to uh, uh, echo that again. Also, uh, in terms of administration in the literature department, this this series really couldn't happen without Danica Chan and Derek, Derek Chin. Um, I also want to uh, uh, shout out to our assistants uh, for the, the reading series, uh, Aidan LaRue and Evelyn Murdoch. Uh, really, without their help, this, this whole setup couldn't happen. So big uh, uh, thank you to them. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to thank um, our fabulous MFA director, Anna Joyce Springer, who's over here. Uh, really appreciate all the work that Anna Joy does. And I think that's it. I'm so excited for this reading. I'm so excited that Eileen is here. Um, and so as I said, Valentina and Allison will be introducing Eileen, and I turn it over to them. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brandon. Eileen Miles is a poet, novelist, performer, and art journalist. 
Lauded for their breadth of work, Miles has written over 20 volumes of poetry, fiction, nonfiction, criticism, and plays, including I Must Be Living Twice, New and Selected Poems, Reissues of Cool for You, and Chelsea Girls. Their most recent publication is titled Afterglow, a dog memoir, a book detailing the artist's time in San Diego with their ever-loved companion, Rosie. Miles is a Guggenheim Fellow, has received four Lambda Book Awards, the Shelley Prize from the PSA, grants from the Warhol Creative Capital Foundation, the Foundation for Contemporary Art, and in 2016, they received the Clark Prize for Excellence in Art Writing. For some, Miles was first known to, their men, to many for their write-in campaign for the 1992 U.S. elections. For others, it is Miles' unflinching, raw, and honest description of their life and the world around them. Regardless of how you are introduced to Miles, you can't help but be sucked into their work. The New York Times described their work as a bridge between many of the discussion of present about sexual violence, class, hookup culture, and a past from which those narratives were often secret or hidden. And even through, though her work is now being transmitted uh, on the mainstream of venues, the TV, it seems to resist assimilation in part by maintaining its sense of defiance. Instead of reading more about their bio, they sum themselves up pretty well in their own words in a poem titled An American Poem. I was born in Boston in 1949. I never wanted the fact to be known, in fact. I spent the better half of my life, my adult life, trying to sweep my early years under the carpet and have a life that was clearly just mine and independent of the historic fate of my family. Can you imagine what it was like to be one of them, to be built like them, to talk like them, to have the benefits of being born into such a wealthy and powerful American family. <laughs> I went to the best schools, had all kinds of tutors and trainers, traveled widely, met the famous, the controversial, the not so admirable, and I knew from a very early age that if there were ever any possibility of escaping the collective fate of the famous Boston family, I would take that route, and I have. I would I hoped, I hopped on an Amtrak to New York to the early, in the early 70s, and I guess you could say my hidden years began. I thought, well, I'll be a poet. <laughs> to read Alien Miles is to read a major force, one that explodes, explores genres and genders in a clear connection between both that subsides in their poetics. While in Chelsea Girls and Cool For You, they depict radical feminine worlds. They are also, at the same time, masterfully defined by Miles' boundless and precise words. In Afterglow, the, their latest book, they present themselves as an author who refuses to keep using the same old tools in the writing toolbox, defiantly telling techniques such as a style, point of view, and narrative, Hey, wake up to this world. We're not living among Hemingways anymore. What is notoriously rebellious about Miles is the fact that they treat reading as a shared moment, intensely visceral between author and reader. The same applies to their writing, because Aileen Miles, as a writer, is the sum of what surrounds or have surrounded them. In their new book, Afterglow, affectionately subtitled A Dog Memoir, Miles writes, now they don't go out. They are gone. People turn and look at me and say, she's here. 
I'm like a breeze. I'm like punctuation on a text, which is them, which is why I'm, I am grateful to be home in California with my dog who is dying, who is now dead. And becoming what surrounds oneself also means in the Miles universe becoming the animal companion one allegedly owns. Aileen Miles is also Rossi, the amazing dog, the little poet. How sublime unconscious is that? As an individual living in this age, Miles is also Aileen Miles in Twitter, where earlier in the morning I tweeted, they how nervous I was for this introduction on my secondhand English. They tweeted me back a maxim, it is all secondhand. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> a maxim that resonates with their imprint, like this one I really admire. The youth drinks and the conflict is resolved. The illusion of alcohol is what we are putting, is that we are putting the ocean inside. Or books become true, you know? Miles is also Aileen Miles on Instagram where they post pictures of everyday beauty and their dog honey. Sometimes the captions are Maxims. Sometimes they just have the BP's last name. Miles also inspired a character in the Amazon series Transparent, where their poems were present too. But that Miles was just a copy of a copy of a copy of Eileen Miles, <laughs> who, who also has taught at NYU, Barnard, Columbia, and UCSD, and who also has personally and unknowingly taught me that writing isn't about writing but about the possibilities of it, which means the possibilities of the world and your books have dragged me to think that in an urgent way. In 1992, Miles ran for president of the United States as an openly female candidate. And now, especially right now, I wonder how everything would be if they had won. I think at least we will have a lot more poets and happy dogs. The one and only Aileen Miles. That was amazing. What that incredible, both of you. So happy and appreciative. And it's so good it's so good to be here. It feels really um Terrific. I mean, I guess I it truly, I mean, I'm reading it, the book I'm, I'm reading from is such a totally San Diego book. And, um, you know, I, ca I came here in um, 2002 to be a professor and I brought Rosie with me and she was so um, totally into San Diego. She was more into San Diego than I was. She was like, because there's no place in America that has dog beaches. It was like, what the hell? She was like, where, I, you know, and, and her life ended here. And, and so she, you know, like, um, it's, this I'm just it's just kind of I, I didn't realize until I was coming here that that you know because I've been like traveling with this book all fall and and that I was like oh my god I mean in fact it's really hard to read here because I feel like I just want to like start reading the book and just read the whole damn book but it would be, it'd be a long night and um, so I'm not going to do that but I'm very I'm very happy to be here and I'm very you know just like I don't know just I have good friends who teach here and and I've just, you know, I've, I was changed by teaching here and it changed my life. And, um, and, and weirdest of all is like, I have, um, I live in New York, but I also have a house in Marfa, Texas, which is near El Paso. And my dog, I never want to put my dog on a plane. So there's just this big thing of like, you know, like moving my dog around North America is this huge major part of my, like my great luxury is getting people to either drive my car or drive my dog. And so somebody who I taught in 8B, who her name is, 
Tina Tay, I put on Facebook, anybody want to drive to, San, to um, El Paso? And boom, two, two girls came forward and one was, she was like, Professor Miles, I was in 8B. And I was like, okay, you got the gig. You know? <laughs> so she just arrived in, in El Paso today, which is, and I think this is all very synchronous. So, and teaching 8B was one of my favorite things in the world. I don't know, is it, is it still called 8B? It's like, because if, you if you're a poet, then you're always teaching workshops. All your life you're teaching workshops until you stop teaching workshops. And 8B was like a mega poetry workshop. It was like an opportunity to like stand on tables and, and huge giant screens. And, and we even had like a joke that was like somebody was teaching um, 8C and they were like threatening us or something or saying like 8B challenges 8C. So I took all, all of 8B, went over to 8C to just like respond and he was so freaked out. It was just like didn't know what to do and, and suddenly we were all standing there like a hundred of us like what have we done and what do we do now? So there were like no good 8B, 8C jokes. But, but we totally tried. It was like an action. You know? So I'm just going to, I'm going to start with the absolute, um, now I wish I was doing a poetry reading too, but um, it's, it's all poetry. There's no difference. I don't believe there's any difference between poetry and prose. So um, I'm just going to read at the beginning, stuff from the beginning of the book. Um, and I feel like if you're a certain kind of writer, if you say you're writing a memoir, that means you're totally writing fiction, and then this is more untrue than anything you've ever written. Um, but some of this is true. One, one day in 1999, an awkward hand-addressed letter appeared in my hallway. The mailman threw everything on the stairs. I grabbed the letter and headed with Rosie to the dog run, which in that neighborhood was a skimpy little triangle at 39th Street, west of 9th Ave. It was an amazing perspective on midtown roofs and also dull traffic heading to New Jersey. My neighbors were weird, sad former actors. I liked the pink-cheeked older woman named Doris who walked everybody in the neighborhood's dogs, including mine. This is like 16 years ago, so Doris is probably dead. Sitting on a bench while Rosie sniffed the ground, I tore open the strange note. It read, Dear Eileen, I take the liberty of calling you Eileen. There's a lot of scare quotes in this. I'm calling you Eileen to begin the unpleasant duty of forcing you. For the longest time, I didn't know that so people would say scare quotes, and I didn't know what that was, but I would know what this was. And they just came together not too long ago. <laughs> Same with jazz hands. I always heard of jazz hands, and I knew what this was, but I didn't know what jazz hands, that this was that. So I'm calling you Eileen to begin the unpleasant duty of forcing you to legally take responsibility for the damages you have inflicted over a period of nine years upon the being you have taken to calling Rosie. I am Rosie's lawyer. Dog lawyers have only become possible in recent years, even months, which is not to say crimes of all kinds against dogs are new in any way. Crimes against dogs are ancient and widespread, but dogs having the wherewithal to attain legal representation is new indeed. My services have been retained thanks to a generous bequest by an anonymous donor who set up a foundation in her will for the explicit purpose of identifying dogs who were likely litigants, candidates for beginning the long and arduous process of getting the ball rolling on dogs' rights. It's been clear to my client during her life, and most pressingly at the time of her death, that the best way to make this need known would be to follow up to take up an individual dog's case, not the case of all dogs, which is too ubiquitous to pursue in the explicit way the law makes possible for human litigants who are generally assumed to be individuals. A wealthy individual, of course, does not have more rights than a poor one. 
We are all brought up to honor human rights, but only wealthy humans are able to use the full force of the law, i.e. obtain high-quality representation. By this logic, there can be no freedom for dogs unless there are wealthy dogs. There is one today, the dog formerly known as Rosie. Somebody, my editor was like, but why is it formally known Rosie, you know, formally known as Rosie? And I thought, well, once a dog has money, she might choose to change her name. We don't know what her name is anymore. <laughs> she has been left a significant sum of money in my client's will. She may spend it as she pleases with the single stipulation that she obtain counsel and press charges against her owner for a variety of abuses and crimes against dog kind. As you know, Eileen Miles, that owner is you. It seemed unbelievable to me. Rosie was about 10. I looked at her licking an empty wrapper against the fence. She appeared entirely innocent of the letter's content. What? Are we already going home, she seemed to say. Okay, I don't think she knows anything about this. I popped the leash back on and walked home, planning my day. The loft we lived in was right across from Port Authority. Day and night, I watched the lights of buses sail in and out of the building. I thought about the letter from time to time. I mean, for years. I showed it to people. They laughed and smiled. Could Rosie and my entire relationship be framed as blame? I did force her to have sex with Buster that one time. No, twice. And actually with two different dogs named Buster, which is the weirdest part. <laughs> Could I write a book about that? I've never been an idea writer. I have like a spurt and then I go do something else. But this would be her book. A dog book is a great idea. So that's where the book begins. And... And the weirdest, I mean, just talking frankly as a writer, the thing that's so weird about that letter I wrote, I was teaching in um, Los Angeles like in 1999, and I just wrote that, I did have Rosie, but I wrote that letter out of the blue, and I was like, what the hell is this? You know, and it and, and just like the book grew around it like years later, like, I mean, like almost 10 years later. So this is a chapter, um, this is, this is, I'm going to drive you guys, this is very San Diego, but this chapter is called My Dog, My God, which... I mean, early on, I just got the idea of the God-dog reversal and just to, to really run with that further than anybody has ever run. Um, so I'm just going to read a little the beginning of this before any hum further than any human has ever run with that joke. <laughs> People said you'll know when I asked them how they knew it was time, when it was okay to take your dog's life. You'll know, they said, looking me right in the eye, and I did. Rosie began dying in June, having those mysterious fits. At the end of each was a puddle of piss. I went to my meeting on Adams Ave in the evenings and I talked about it. The one near the park with the working people, the beautiful dog walker, the pale curly-haired man who taught law and came in covered in sweat, almost naked from running. One night he and I stood on the sidewalk under those shady trees. He said, my name is Philip, lover of horses. He smiled. I thought he was flirting with me, but it was part of his euphoria. <laughs> I understood, because I was the one with the dying dog. My friend, the older woman, said, you've got to stop. I was biting my fingers. My dog is dying. I kept saying it. I wash her ass, and then I wash all the towels. One evening, I was feeling a little extra naked after describing the ritual of mopping her piss, and I thought, that's it. She's God. And I felt so calm. I found God now. My God, my dog, I chuckled. That's it, our room. This is ecstasy, and everything got bright. She's dying, and I'm watching her. I'm not thinking about it, not that that makes any difference. I got this intention, this understanding. Did anyone ever say suffering was about difference? It sops it all up. We are this picture of ourselves now, Rosie and I, and we want to be seen. 
I took such good care of her when she was dying, I relished it. She made me go slow. I'd hear the rustling of her limbs, and I'd run to her because she couldn't get up, and there was generally a puddle already there. In my house, I have beautiful wooden floors. Now I had a pile of face cloths, torn towels, rags. I'd mop up her urine with a clean, dry towel, and then I'd come back, and I'd wash her ass. I'd come back with a damp one, wash it again, and then I'd wipe her dry. I made sure she was really comfortable. I'd do it with love. I attended my dog's ass, the collapse of her rear legs, that I saw as little high heels. I imagined her a drag queen or a young girl unsteadily teetering, a touching failure. I swooped in and made it better, made it comfortable. I felt loving. I felt like a god, too. I felt less ambivalently loving than I'd ever felt in my life. Now I know what love feels like. I do it and I think it. I love feeling this. Love loving your doggy ass. My home became a shrine, the bird of paradise around the door, the late night and early morning dog barking in the dark canyon beyond the yard. When I bought the house, it said on the deed, disclosures, dogs in canyon. What could that mean? Hundreds and hundreds of dogs barking day and night. Not all the time, just when any one of them got an idea. Then they all got it. <laughs> There's a growly picture of me standing in the screened-in porch light flooded in over that canyon, and I look like an animal. But the animal looks great. You see a movie sometimes in which someone is doing something really difficult, waging war, defending their family, walking very far and very long, and they look terrific. They look great. The hair looks good. The person looks, well, they look hot. And I would watch these spectacles with a doubleness. I'd, I'd keep watching, because unless a movie is really bad, I'm usually enthralled, but I always think, no one would look so good doing that. <laughs> but in fact, people often look radiant suffering. How often have you told someone they look fabulous, and they say, thanks, because I feel terrible? <laughs> and you can see it right behind their eyes. Terrible puts a candle in there. Terrible turns on the light. You wonder if people are just empty when they're moving forward with the plan, when it's all on the outside and the world is full of light. But when you suffer, the light is in. It's all yours. I'd mop the floor after I took care of her body, and I'd wash the animal print rug. The sound of the washing machine churning was a huge part of the day, and I felt it deeply, the expensive cost of water. On the West Coast, you are living on this shaky shelf that's going to get choked. Everyone knows one day will come when there won't be any water. California is crazy. Water's getting sucked there through those long pipes from Colorado or someplace. Where are they getting this water from? I think Colorado is it. Some underground world slowly getting poisoned or drained. It's all very thin and it's going to end soon. But we're spending the end of your life together. This is our vacation, our purpose. First, Myra came and stayed with me, and she agreed it was hard. I can't believe you're doing this and alone, she said. I know, but I love it, I said. I understand, she twinkled. Myra's around 50. It's interesting to see your friends grow old, and when I say she twinkled, I mean the moment Myra smiled, all the versions of her were twinkling right in that moment. It's not just the dying who are filled with light. Myra was smiling from her experience, which was cute. It was a light from far away, from many places, arriving here now. Watching Rosie die made me a little in love with the whole wash of light, of time, its twists, which must be why I ended it with Paige, who visited me next. She was a young Canadian artist, and I met her at an opening in New York, in the midst of a crowd of people all her age, mostly female, which is, which is just like this world in San Diego where I'm living, except in New York, there's not a school. Here, there's millions of young women. I almost can't see the young. They're like the greenness in the sky and the beach. 
Paige comes up to me at the opening. Are you you, she says. Ten years ago, somebody told me, you're the only one your age who goes out. Now they don't go out. They're gone. People turn and look at me and say, she's here. I'm like a breeze. I'm like punctuation on a text which is them. Which is why I'm grateful to be home in California with my dog who is dying, who is now dead. I'm going to read one more little thing about California beaches. No, I'm going to stop. I'm going to go to another section. I think we need puppets now. Right? If, if there's puppets, you got to go to the puppets. There's no, there's no way to leave the puppets in the... Um. So I... Um, when I, when I got this dog, Rosie, and I, I had never had a dog before, when I, and I looked into her eyes, and I was like, oh, my God, it's my father. It's totally my father. <laughs> and my dad was this very sweet man who died when he was 44 and I was 11, and we were very close, and he was an alcoholic. And, um, and it totally, he was very funny, and, we, and he totally would come back as my dog. If he could do that, he would do that. And so I felt convinced for the whole time of this dog's life that this was my dad. Um, so I wrote a chapter called My Father Came Again as a Dog, and I explained how that works. Um, and so I wrote it at, at an artist colony, McDowell, and I read it there, and people, people loved that, and then they were, they were laughing, and this is great and weird and everything, and they were like, is Rosie going to talk in the book? And I was like, it's like so artist colony. Is Rosie going to talk? I was like, you know. And I was like, this is a memoir. This is a serious memoir, you know. <laughs> But then I thought about, but this is, I mean, I feel like the whole thing about being a writer is that you teach workshops forever and you give people prompts and then you realize your own hideous rest of your life is giving yourself prompts. <laughs> so I was like, okay, under what conditions would Rosie talk? And so I, part of having an alcoholic parent was that like I grew up, I went to Catholic schools and we had like a Catholic youth organization and they had all these after school classes and I would take every class to stay out of the crazy house I grew up in. So I took ceramics, I took clay, I took drawing, I took puppet making. So I made these puppets and they're like, they're still, I still have these puppets, they're like my, my favorite possession. And so I, and I've been thinking for a while and particularly when I was here, I was like, maybe I should make like a video of the puppets, you know? And so suddenly I thought like, no, if the puppets had a talk show, and invited Rosie on as their guest, then she would talk, right? What else would she do, just sit there? So I'm just going to read a, the beginning of the Puppets Talk Show. And I think if it's not totally clear, the pup, there's a lot of puppets in this, and there's like a puppet drum circle. <laughs> so when I say puppets drumming, just think big. <laughs> oh. So Oscar the host is a puppet. He has shiny black painted hair and bright red dots on both his cheeks. He's wearing a pair of blue overalls with very baggy suspenders and a blue and yellow striped shirt. One of his feet is gone and his pant leg is empty. Oscar, hello, hello, hello. Our guest tonight, Rosie, a dog, is here to set the record straight. All puppets, yay! Oscar, yes, Rosie is our guest. Thanks for coming, Rose. Rosie nods. Glad to be here, Oscar. Very glad, in fact. <laughs> Rosie leans forward a bit in her chair, adjusting her butt. Now, it's very hard not to do Rosie physical movements in this chapter. Oscar, puppets and dogs. A lot of folks probably can't see the connection between our kinds. I say balderdash. All puppets drumming. Oscar, our studio audience, the kids. Pan camera pans to the kids. Just to the left of Oscar and Rosie is a short row of puppets. Bedelia, who has black yarn hair. Montgomery, a young guy with painted reddish hair. Casper, a ghost. <laughs> little, 
little more than a white clown head in a sheet, and finally, Crocky the Crocodile, a pair of papier-mâché jaws going clack, clack, and a lower body of red and green upholstery material. Behind them are hundreds and thousands of puppets going back endlessly into the horizon, which becomes mountains and hills covered with puppets, all the puppets in the world. Rosie turns and returns to Oscar, smiling. Wow. Oscar, yeah, there's a lot of us. The meaning of puppets and dogs has been a long time coming, and you can see how important it is to our kind. Puppet nation. No, puppet universe. Rosie, I hope I can do my kind justice. I mean, there's only one of me, and there's a lot of dogs. Oscar, what do dogs want, Rosie? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you agreed to come in today, and you can see what your being here means to us. And I hope you don't mind me being honest. You guys are generally considered the enemy for good reason. Dogs historically have torn a good many puppets apart, <laughs> tore us to shreds. Camera close up on Oscar's face and a tiny tear is dripping down. <laughs> Rosie, I get it, Oscar. A lot of wrong has been done, but those do Oscar bows his head and then lifts a white hand. Oscar, those were ordinary dogs, Rosie? Is that what you were going to say? Oscar looks over at his wife, Bedelia, and all the puppets up on the hills. He regains his composure. Rosie, I think I would feel more comfortable on the floor. Hops down and plants her head on her paws, looking innocent. Oscar, forget it, forget it. You came here to talk with us, and it's time to move on. Dogs are pawns, and puppets are pawns. Let's face it, puppets are puppets. People put their hands inside us. They enter our heads and our bodies and make us say things whether we believe them or not. Rosie, over her shoulder. People have us on leashes. People feed us on the floor. They put us to sleep. People put us down. Oscar, right, and that doesn't happen to us. But now that you're animated, we've got a lot more in common. All it takes to see things fresh is the right opportunity, a good invite. Oscar looks around proudly to be on our show. Rosie hops back on chair. And how many dogs get this, Oscar? How many dogs are called? I'm grateful I was called. I always was. I guess that's why I'm here. Oscar, what was it like? Rosie, what was what like? Oscar, I don't know how to put it, the fame. I mean, you're definitely getting famous right now. You've been written about like Lady Di. You're basically being deified. Flips through the pages of a galley, nodding, as well as defiled. Rosie, no, no great shakes, Oscar. Big dog, little dog, all the same. Humans are the problem, I think you'll agree. Oscar, nodding, hmm. All puppets. A murmuring begins with Oscar's low hum and cascades all the way up the mountain like a growly bell or a quake. Oscar, you just touched the rock, my friend. Rosie, the one I had rode me like a car. She was interested in how she abused me. She wrote about it. She wrote about it extensively. I mean, I think that's why I'm here, right? When I died, she described the ways my body was treated, paw pushed in plaster like a criminal or a child. They made a rosy souvenir before they threw me in the fire. Then, and only then, oh yeah, and when I was dying, get this, when they're wheeling me around town like a man who has money, then she writes on her long legal pad, puppet, puppetry. She gets the idea that I was used, treated like I was empty. Great. Yeah, and how about my whole long life, Eileen? Oscar, that was your name for her. Rosie, no, it was not. I called her Jethro. <laughs> that was my name for her, and believe me, I got in more than one fight defending that name. I tell a few other people in the park, ugh, here comes Jethro when she's loping towards me with her big smile and a rope, like it's good news I've got to go home for hours and sit on the floor. 
Yet I had a certain amount of loyalty. The dogs in the park got snickering and telling all the other dogs, look, look, Jethro. I wasn't down for that shit, laughing at her. That's part of why dogs, dogs in captivity, but that's pretty much all dogs, we're known for our loyalty. We stay with the hand we were dealt, and we generally will fight for it. Dogs do have choices. Unlike you guys, we can move on our own, and some dogs totally do. Go to Mexico, for instance, and live your own life, though you can also fucking starve on those streets. But yeah, there's a lot of us down there. I guess anything's better than getting gassed as a pup, but... My point was I was very often defending her and getting myself in fights in the dog run for years. And did she have any idea? First, she tries to get me knocked up, had me raped. And that is in this book, to her credit. Later, she decides, no, that's not what I want. And then she has my insides yanked out. Puppets look aghast, all puppets. Rosie, you didn't know about that? Spaying? Oscar, they take your copy thing away. That's it, isn't it, Rosie? Still, do you want more dogs? That, isn't that the argument, alleviating dog suffering? Rosie, yes, we want more dogs. Do you want more puppets? Rosie turns and looks up the mountain and beyond. We want to outnumber humans and turn it around. Not in a warlike fashion, but gentle, you know. <laughs> we're, we're doing it from the inside out already. That's what this book means. We are talking to our masters very gently and subtly. Dogs are true leaders and strong teachers, as the life of Eileen Miles after my own life will show. Life is short. That's the problem. It's very hard for one dog to do much in one lifetime. Sixteen years, by the time you hit your message, your body's failing. Oscar, so there's some truth? Rosie, truth to what? Eyebrows raise. Hmm? Oscar, well, here's your book, Afterglow. It's right on my knee. And what I'm hearing from you now is that it's not so clear how much of the work here is yours. Oscar turns towards the camera, waving the book. Authorship, who's writing who? Now, I'm wondering if I should... Yeah, I'm going to leave the puppets. We're going to leave the puppets there, and we're going to go on to drugs now. Um, so when she... Okay, so when, when Rosie died, um, I, she had all these, like, possessions like a leash and a bowl and and um it was just like all this dog stuff and I didn't know what to do with it so I actually I left San Diego when I moved to Los Angeles and so I put all her stuff in a box and I brought it to Los Angeles and then when I got to this apartment in Los Angeles I stuffed it in the closet and I didn't look at it until I was reading Los, leaving Los Angeles and then I thought what am I going to do with that stuff so I pulled the box down actually the chapter will explain I, so I wrote about each thing in the box so it's kind of like Rosie's will this chapter and there's like each so I each thing in the box I took a picture of and then I wrote an account of it and so I'll just read you one account and this is there was a drug called Rimadil if you ever had a dog and the dog has pain you give them Rimadil so I'm going to read the um, the Rimadil section The rape, I would read the rape, but it's too hard. You can, I, you've, I'm not, I don't think you can take it. I mean, it actually is really bad. It's like, it's like a rape is a rape. You know, dog rape is as bad as a human rape. So this is drugs, Rimadil. It depressed me when I found the bottle in the cabinet. You've been taking these tiny white pills for about three years, and one time we lost them on the road our first trip to California. 
No, it was our second, August 2002. I think your water bowl fell out at the truck stop and the pills were in it. And without them, you were completely in pain all the time. It was unbelievable that these tiny little pills made it so you could bear walking. It was already a total maintenance life, but I didn't know. I forgot. You were okay if you didn't have to move, but once you needed to pee, you had to be picked up, and it was the first hint of what the end would look like. Jordy, who we were traveling with, had a cat. The cat's name was Avi. Avi had a tent in the back. Jordy drove a Subaru wagon. We got to the house, and Jordy cut a small hole in our office door so only the cat could get in. Otherwise, you kept racing in and dunking your head in his box. Dogs love cat shit. Who knew? And a pit bull has a very wide grin. Now it was a kitty litter grin. No, I'd scream. I'm sorry, Geordie happily growled as she stood in front of the refrigerator snacking, the door to her office wide open. After several episodes of feasting from Avi's box, you began going to the vet a lot. Maybe she's tired from traveling. She's 12. Yeah, 12 is old. I could never picture you dying, but the idea was introduced then. Each new vet would say, how old is she? Twelve. Twelve, huh. And then look down at her chart. I remember bumping into our favorite vet like the day before you died. I took you to the park on 30th Street that you liked. There was the vet with her friends, and it was like she was seeing a ghost. Is that Rosie? I can't believe she's still around. I felt betrayed. You spend all this money, and you feel so hopeful, and then you realize the vet's thinking she'll be dead. Why don't they say let her go? A mechanic would. Get something new, right? Come on. The vet's standing there stroking the dog's head. She's okay. You smile. The vet's thinking she's dead. A day you could have very easily died, we were laying in the sunlight on my desk, on my bed. (laughs) My desk. That's very weird. Um, We did that, but I'm not going to go into that here. On my bed. This is like 2003. I'm always reading because I teach, and you were lying there. Rosie was. An early fall day in San Diego. Beautiful. And you stirred like you were ready to jump. You stood up and swayed. This tiny sway like I'd never seen before. You hit the floor, stood there a moment, wiggling with that look in your eye. You collapsed. Someplace in all of the kitty litter emergencies, the vet had said something helpful. Look at her gums. If they're white, get her in here quick. Why? The vet took her stethoscope off. She could have congestive heart failure. So Rosie's lying on the floor, and I lift her doggy lip, and there it is, lavender, pale lavender. I threw her in the Subaru, and we drove. Geordie drove, and I sat in the back holding your head. Hurry, as the gums grew white. Did the litter do it, I asked. Her spleen had burst. Possibly, said the vet. Just keep an eye on her, and we set it together. Watch the gums. I have to say that the cat died, too. Avi's now a small agave bush in the yard. I liked him. He was a poet, and he's why I got Ernie later on. Geordie confessed that she had once taken care of her uncle's birds in San Francisco and the birds died. How? I, I, I stopped feeding them. I was a kid, she screamed in this delighted way, like she was saying something adorable. First her cat lost fur, then he stopped eating, which I guess seemed normal since she didn't really eat either. And then one night you knew her. <laughs> I was like, this is great. Um... Oh, guys, I lost my place. Um, I shouldn't laugh at my own jokes. <laughs> and one night, he was under a chair, tiny, and Avi had been a big, fat cat, and it was like nobody noticed. I mean, she kept making vet appointments and breaking them because she was busy since she was on the job market. 
I had a job and she didn't. I didn't even want my job. And finally, I took him to the vet, but I didn't know anything. So we rushed him to the hospital that night and then he was dead. There was something bad about my house. In June, you began to have fits. Kathy called me. She was a graduate student who became my best friend. She said you were jumping into the truck and suddenly you fell and were lying in the driveway, your paws shaking and foam was coming out of your mouth. I flew home and saw that you were weakened, but still you were you and you seemed fine. I went back to Toronto and then it happened again. I was back for good. The fits could happen at any time. I began to feel it, same as when you were about to shit. It was like the air changed. I was very wedded to how you were in the world because you held me there with you in the frame. Though I was always waiting. The time I had a dog when I was a kid, Taffy, he was taken away so I only felt safe if I acted like you were someone I was having an affair with and I had to be a little brusque. And whenever I came home from a trip, you'd be a little miffed and wouldn't look at me, but then would be on our walk again, which was our life, which felt like my family. We pretended that there was no connection, which was how we felt it. I vowed now not to ever go away. I couldn't, and now the definition was simply us, our intimacy, here, and you were dying. I mean, all those years with doctors when they asked your age and they looked, I mean, I knew what they meant, but I didn't truly believe it. They thought it had something to do with your white blood cells. They thought maybe it was leukemia, your heart, of course. They give you tests and put you on that drug and your eyes look completely crazy. Prednisone. I really hated that drug. I don't like that, I said to the vet. Now, okay, now we're going to go postal, and I think that's the end of the reading. Um, How to make this make sense? Okay. Um, so I wrote a lot of this book in San Diego, but then um, I got a, um, I got a Guggenheim Fellowship, which is like this grant that everybody applies for for like hundreds of years. You know, you're like, please God, give me a Guggenheim, and then you don't get it, and then you like, next. It's like it's like you know the lottery kind of for, for writers and artists and academics and then it just gets really like you get to you start constructing a list of famous people who have applied 20 or 25 times so you're not humiliated to send your Bach top in again um, but I for me I always thought if I ever get a Guggenheim I'll go live in Ireland so I wrote a lot of this book um, in San Diego and then at various residencies and then I wound up in Ireland and um, and it was kind of amazing because so I went there and I needed about 35 more pages of the book and so um, and somebody who it's very interesting I have a friend a writer named Fanny Howe who taught here before I did and she's a poet and a fiction writer and we have this weird connection which is that like every time Fanny had a job and then she would leave they would hire Eileen you know? And so we kind of like, even jobs I haven't even taken, they're like, do you want the job? Fanny just left, you know? <laughs> and we both come from, I'm Irish and Polish, and Fanny's, I mean, wasp and Irish or something. But we both have Irish families and Irish passports. And so finally, I'm going to, I get a Guggenheim, I'm going to Ireland. So I'm Fanny, where should I go? And she gives me a whole list of places to go, including, um, an abbey, like there was a, a monastery, and she goes, it's a really great, great place to write. And so I go to this monastery, and then I need about 35 five more pages in the book, so I'm like, you know, like praying for the 35 pages. And then Rosie just basically comes and starts to talk to me. 
and um, and she's just like. I'll read you. I'll read you a little bit of the beginning of the chapter because she basically it was like, you know, get your shit together, Eileen. Finish the book. Here's what it is. And so I'll read a little bit of the beginning of the chapter and then the end of the chapter, and I think um, we'll be done. Um, so where the hell is this? Okay, so this is this is the beginning of Rosie talking. So she was talking in the puppets talk show, but this this is her whole. She talks for like 35 pages this time. So the chapter is called Dog's Journey. And two, I mean, like part of how I write a book is like, I just like, I have, I just make lists. I make all these lists. And then at some point I see, I, I just, so I'll write something and then I'll be like, what else do I feel like writing ne next? And I just look on the list and I find something that sounds like that would be fun to write. And sometimes it's just a title and I don't even know what it means. So I had something called Dog's Journey. And I thought that sounds good. That should be in my book. And I had no idea what it meant. So when I was in the monastery in Limerick, Ireland, Rosie came and she says, I've been gone for your, from your life for seven years. Believe me, I'm keeping an eye on things. I noticed a chapter on your list called The Dog's Journey. I read it and think I can help. I know I'm the dog being referred to and I'm a pit bull. We love to work, so I will help you get the thing up and running and on its way around the world. Afterglow is totally a book with legs. Four, if I can be dumb. So it will go a lot further than your earlier Eileen-based fictions. <laughs> the dog's journey is, as I envision it, a big chapter, maybe the last. You've got that look of fear on your face, Eileen. Okay, I know you don't like to get pushed around. I'm not doing that. But I most definitely am dogging you. You need it. Here's the plan. Imagine this chapter as a tapestry. Seriously, because a dog going on a journey sounds like a kid's book cartoon most likely, and a couple of celebrities will be doing both of our voices and you won't have any control over that. So my advice, Eileen, is for you to step back a little, go to the 19th century, which you love, or even the 14th, which was really the, the day, the heyday of tapestry. Tapestry is absolutely the way to go for this chapter. It's a literature I'd like to rub up against. Any dog would. <laughs> tapestry is Tony, it will absorb what we give it. I'd like to pee on this chapter, frankly. I would like to tear it to shreds. A tapestry is bumpy and nubby and even stinky like a couch, and a dog loves a couch. I'm thinking, of course, of the purple one you've had in storage for eight years. It could have been in the chapter where you listed my stuff because it was my couch. I simply loved it. It was us. The couch was the place where you finally fought back. It was so cool and so modern. Even you couldn't, couldn't accept I had torn it to shreds. It was your California couch. So after my attack, you had it covered in lavender, marine quality fabric so I could no longer open it. We hit rock. Okay, so that's Rosie explaining. So, so basically, so we go to, I, I go to Ireland on my, and, and she's talking and she's explaining things. And then, and she was, because she was also my father and my father was a mailman. But what's so weird is when I go to Ireland and by that time the, um, the Irish, because of the internet, the Irish census of 1903 and 1911 was online, so you could just find your family. And it turned out I was staying in an artist colony earlier, and my family was right there. I met the Mileses, I met the O'Reardons. But the thing that was so weird was that they were all mailmen. Like, my dad was a mailman, the, the Mileses all over Ireland. I mean, I just feel like I come from this long thing of mailmen. So this is a little bit of that. Let's see, where should we go? Yeah, I'm just going to, this may not make any sense, but it's pretty, and it's where I'm going to end. So, so basically we're talking about, and so part of what we learn is that all mailmen are dogs. 
that's what's really going on. And dogs, dogs become mailmen, mailmen become dogs. This is part of the transmigration of souls. And it's all about delivering the letter. The letter does not stop. You write a letter and it goes somewhere and someone reads it and the letter goes back and forth multitudinously. A letter, a letter will never die. It must be burned, I say, to be returned to light. The post office needs to walk in the blue uniform of time. Oh, the, oh. see, there are too many things that you don't understand. Let's see. How can I tell you? Well, I'll just tell you. It's sort of like the, the U.S. Postal uniform is made out of this blue cadet denim cloth, which is kind of a Persian color, and it sort of represents like um, like American money has triangles on it, and just America's a weird, evil country, right? And it's post office post office workers wear this blue uniform, and it's all very theosophical. So just know that, okay? Um, a letter will never die. It must be burned. You've got you to read this book is what I'm basically telling you. <laughs> this is an incredible book. It must be burned, I say, to be returned to the light. The post office needs to walk in the blue uniform of time, the mixed cadet, and be seen knowing your messages are being sent by his footsteps and by your thought, the ancient method. Dogs should wander freely, and so should the postal workers. FedEx is evil because it is faster. The post office can be faster still in the Neanderthal way of no trace. Not the toxic electronic light of the internet. What is the internet? The observed letter. The unprivate mind. The mind will be open soon enough. The white man came in the middle of the night and stabbed and axed the children and the women to death. He is not worth the dogs he has working and living with him. Each wounded space should hold a party and it will. A letter is like a dream of a thought. We mourn the loss of the letter, but dogs mourn the loss of the thought. The postal uniform could grow softer, longer, and looser, more like tunics. And the post offices could each be decorated by a tapestry such as this, made by idle postal women and men, no longer on a particular route, but wandering aimlessly, being the beautiful letters of our time. To be a season of postal workers wandering in their lightweight gossamer mixed cadet blue shirts and pants and gowns. In the winter, a fine blue wool coat reflecting the sky. And when a snowflake falls on the arm of a postal worker, he will stop and smile and gesture to all around him. And they will look at what has landed on him and what is falling in the skies because he is a dog and dogs love snow. There is no burden anymore. Neither snow nor sleet nor rain shall be considered anything but colors and not problems at all. What the sky is doing that I am continuous with and look at what has fallen on my arm. The hats of the worker will grow lush, wide-brimmed in summer with flowers and fruits beginning to grow off them and in winter tall feathers to communicate with the birds flying south or staying around. Slowly the hats will fall and drape the bodies of the postal workers and the clothes will begin to fall away and the hair will grow wild and curly. The women will be models for all of the other humans. Wild, strong, mammalian women of the U.S. Postal Service carrying nothing but a strong and passionate attitude and a message for everyone, which is their own bouncing back and forth among them for all eternity or infinity or today. Time in the hands of the postal worker will become slowly unlabeled. FedEx and UPS will continue rushing around, but increasingly they will not be carrying anything else but speed itself. And eventually they will begin bumping into each other and only each other because the proper refuge will have occurred and everyone will be beginning to live slowly in the right time with themselves because there is no kingdom now and the end is only when the road has invited us to leave. Are we ready? Thank you.
Thank you. So I guess this is the any questions moment. This microphone is coming around the room. So, and if you have, I mean, you've all used mics. Mics are very exciting to use. So. <laughs> Doesn't even matter what the question is. It just feels good. Awesome. Doesn't even have to be a question. Oh, come on. <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you for that reading. It's fantastic. Um, You're welcome. So I noticed in, 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 in many parts of the book, there's a lot of collecting going on. There's a lot of uh, the, the opening envelope you had for, I think, 10 or 11 years, you said. Um, the couch was uh, around for a number of years. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, holding on to things and collecting and how collecting is part of maybe your process? Oh, that's, oh, that's, so, that's so weird. That's so interesting. That's really great. Um, yeah, I feel like... Um, I feel like I do feel like everything, like a poem or a piece of writing, is just a pile of stuff, and so is everything else, right? I mean, it's sort of like if you're a Buddhist and you meditate, they say all skandhas are empty, and that means the skandhas mean your senses, you know. And supposedly, like hearing and seeing is just a pile of things. Like nobody can understand why it works because it's just like the eyes are like rods and cones, and the hearing is just these weird bones that are sitting, sitting in this, you know, so it's just like everything is just stuff, piles of stuff. Um, and so I think when you're writing a book, it's sort of like it's hard to imagine. I mean, as a, as a poet, you know, like, you know, a poem is about this big, you know, and, and it can get longer, but it starts to, it's like a little pile of stuff, so it's sort of manageable. But then when you go on to, like, write a longer work, you're like, how can I do this? I can't see it all at once, you know, and and so it just winds up being this combination of like surges, and then you just have all these piles, and you start kind of moving them in together. Like I feel like ultimately the way to like to write a novel or a longer work, all you need is a long table, you know, like because you have to get out of the computer because the computer you never will see it all, you know. So you have to like find a space where you can lay it all out and see the piles of stuff and move this move the piles around you know, to create an order and then some things get thrown out and you find the, the right order, which is the trick. And it's sort of the ache, the ache of writing a book is that you're like, it's just like, oh, you know, it's just not right. It's not right. And then eventually it's like buying a gift for somebody, except it's you, you know, eventually you kind of get it all into the order. But it is, it is this kind of waiting and this, this collecting and this gathering, which I think a poem is too, of course. It's just like you just, you have a feeling and then you need to kind of hang all these things off it. You know, that's such a, thank you. That's such a great question. There was somebody, somebody was stretching down here. <laughs> Hi. Here comes the microphone. Hello. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you didn't believe that there was a difference between prose and poetry. Right. Um, well, I mean, like literally, I guess, you know, like poetry doesn't fill the page and prose does. So I think there's that. But I think the thing is, before there was publishing, there was, there was language and there was writing and there was, I mean, there was poetry first, certainly, and then there was, and then there was prose. I think maybe that's the way it goes. But it seems to me that like, 
in terms of composition, at least, I mean, I mean, I, I, I can't say that I can make a rule for everybody, but for myself, I don't feel the difference at all because I feel like um, prose is con, con, managed and controlled by rhythm just as much as poetry is, you know? And I feel like when I'm writing a sentence, it's like when I'm trying to finish the sentence, I know it sounds like eep. You know what I mean? Like I was like, and I keep, and I, you know, like I'm kind of looking, there's, there's a sonic thing going on compositionally. And even like, I kind of, I know the length of the sentence. I don't know what it says, you know? And, and so I just think that, um, I think there's a, um, there's kind of a, um, I think is a, a rhythm to composition in both that seems to be the most intrinsic fact of the act of writing, you know? And I think if there isn't rhythm, it's just like, it's just like, it's like a dead list. I mean, when I say, the thing that's so funny about saying it's a list sounds like it's just inert matter, but the order is what affects it. And then, you know, it's sort of like this after that has a rhythm, that after this does not, you know? And, and you've got to find that thing. But once, and part of the, part of the assemblage is a rhythmic practice too that's why i really literally say you should make a physical space so that you can move and walk i mean like bob dylan famously said that any writing you do while you're moving is a good thing you know and i think somehow or other in the act of writing you have to figure out how that is moving you know and i think so i think that's a more important fact than whether it's poetry or prose that it be moving I'm done. Hi. <laughs> um, I'm really uh, interested in the question of, of how you sort of, uh, since it seems like you're tapping into energy in some way in composition, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, where the decision is made between one book versus another? Like, are you, are you writing a book of poems versus a book of, of prose? Like, when do you decide that? Right, right. Uh, yeah. And then I also wanted to ask about did I get a cat? Yeah, yeah. Now in my life, or yeah, yeah. no? I don't have a cat. I have a dog now. I wish I had a cat, but my. Yeah, so you could address those two. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. Oh, that's so great. I mean, I feel like it's like for me, there's like poems and and prose. They're simultaneous. You know, like I'm writing poems out of one kind of feeling, and I'm writing. You know, like I might think I'm working on this book now. You know, and and yet the poems seem like they're like, over here, Eileen. And I think part of it is being an, an, just an inherently lazy person, you know? And, and, like, I'm an energetic, lazy person. I don't want to work. I really, I just am, like, kind of nervous. And, and so what I feel like doing different things, like, if, if writing is, if work can be procrastinating, then I will do it. And so, so much work is procrastinating from other kinds of work, you know? And so I think that's how it feels to me. So I'm writing poems because I don't want to work on that book. And then I'm like, kind of my, I'm disgusted by myself, and so I don't want to write a poem. I think I'll work on the novel, you know? And so there's just a, and then it just gets more and more elaborate. Other people ask you to write something, and I'm like, good, I don't have to work on that book. I'll do the thing that they want me to do. And I think the thing that's interesting is that it gets to be a dog race at a certain point in time, because it's sort of like, at some point you have to finish something. And so that's when you have to really decide, you know, because it's like you need to complete, you know? And so then, then it's like, it's like, 
which dog will get to the finish line, and I have to pick what that dog is and then stick with it. And then that crew requires a kind of focus that is slightly unnatural to me, and then I often have to do things like go to artist colonies or seclude myself for periods of time so that I can really keep things out. And even there, I'm writing poems when I'm not supposed to be because I feel like it always was an act of defiance. I would have some shitty job you know, in high school or college, particularly college and particularly after college, where you're supposed to do some dumb thing and I'd be like writing a poem, you know, <laughs> or, you know, and so I think it always was stolen time. And so I have to figure, now I'm stealing from me, but it still has to feel like an act of theft in some way, you know, so like this isn't like an act of obedience, you know. Um, and the cat thing, I wish I, I would love a cat. I had a cat during the era of Rosie, and, and it was great. But, um, but like right now, I think I've gone, I, there's an animal communicator that I went to when Rosie was around to find out certain things. And animal communicators are kind of amazing, you know? And, and so I've talked to her about honey, and she was like, don't get a cat. That's all I can say. <laughs> you know? So I kind of have a feeling of what that means, and I think, because I kind of want to get a chihuahua too, you know? And I was like, you know. She's like, don't get another dog. So I'm kind of just going to take her advice. Um, yes. Hello. So I just graduated from NYU, and then I moved back to L.A., and I noticed that you said your book was very San Diego, but that you live in New York. So I was just wondering if you find yourself having to recalibrate moving between the two states, what you love about it. I'm kind of going through a period of, like, Mm -hmm. I think you have to reconstitute yourself to, to write or be in a new location, you know? Like, I feel like I learned to write in New York, you know? And when I came to San Diego, I was like, oh, what the fuck, you know? How is this going to work? And it was really, and, and, and even in New York, there's like a myth, like, don't go to California. It ruins your writing, you know? <laughs> And I think it was because, like, New Yorkers who are used to, like, you know, you're used to, like, 100 conversations and, and bumping into people and crowds of people and this whole kind of consciousness that is crowds, you know, and then suddenly you're here and you're, like, in your car, you know, and you're, like, I remember my, my claim in San Diego was that I saw more plants than people, you know, and that I, at some point I really felt like I wasn't getting enough face, you know, I just thought I want to be looking in faces and talking, you know, and instead I'm like, and, I, and then I started to even Ray Amitraut's work, I felt like I started to understand it when I got here. Like I thought, oh, these are like little cars, these little modular poems are these little compressed things and there's like media information and then a perverse thought. And I was like, I don't think that way because it's all kind of like this kind of closed thing, you know. And I just, but I just think it's literal like when you're a kid and you discover that if you go onto that tunnel and you scream, you get this fabulous sound. And I think you really have to kind of take the soundings of the new space and figure out how to, how to be in it as a person. And also, I mean, like even socially, right? I remember realizing when I lived in California, I had to work harder to have friends and go out. And if there was something going on, I sort of had to do it because there wouldn't be something else. You know, whereas in New York, you're always like, ah, I'm staying in, I don't want to go out, I don't want to do things. Because if you went out, you were like virally infected with the next opportunity, you know? But here I felt like I had to be aggressive. I was like, do you want to go out? Do you want to go to the movies? You know? It was just like, it wouldn't just happen, you know? So it's just, I, and yeah, and writing works the same. So. Hello. Hi, my question is sort of related. Um, so 
based on tonight, it sounds like your uh, experience with UCSD and with San Diego was overall positive, which was surprising to me because my introduction to uh, your opinion of San Diego and your work actually was actually a, um, a poem called The Frames, assigned by Ray Armentrout out here. Ah. And it, it didn't seem like you liked San Diego very much. Oh, I love to complain bitterly about whatever my condition is. <laughs> It's like the whole city of New York is walking around saying it's horrible here. Are, are you gonna are you getting away? Are you gonna get out? You know how are you, how long? You know, I mean, I think the condition of living someplace is you find, have to find its edges and then complain bitterly about what they are. You know, and every place has them and has different ones. It's almost like you don't know a place unless you could say this sucks. You know, um, and then, and then every and then you return. You're like, oh my God, it's so great here. What was I do? You know, why did I leave? This is insane. This is beautiful. So I, yeah, I, I, it was, I love hate, you know. I had a beautiful house, which I went today and saw, and they've destroyed it. You know, they cut down the tree. They changed the cool-ass fence that I put up. It was just like, I don't even want to see what they did in the back, but, you know. But, yeah, I, yeah, I liked, I liked many, many parts of my life here, and then other parts I didn't like. So it's just, you know, life. <laughs> Oh, I complain. Even the San Diego Reader, there was an article. I actually complained bitterly there, and I was practically getting hate mail. You know, excuse me. Back to you. Um, so I remember um, what uh, at the beginning you said that uh, I believe you said that the memoir is like the most untrue thing that you've ever written. The most what? The most untrue thing that you've ever. It's written. very fictional. Um, is it more? Is it that it's like entirely like false, or that you're more like? Well, I just think the truth contains a lot of fiction, you know? Like, it's just like that stuff with the puppets, you know? Like, is that true? I mean, I think it's kind of true. I, there are puppets, you know? <laughs> right? Um, and, 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 and I think they're talking about true things. I mean, like, the feelings are true, I think. But, I mean, I just felt like, and also just truly, you know, like, was my dog my father? You know, I felt that, and it made it a possible, maybe it was a way to still have my father and still have my dog, you know, and then, and then it's sort of like, and I think every relationship you start making up language, you know, like how many names do you have for the people that matter to you, you know, it's sort of like families make up this crazy language and, and people who are in love start making these names for each other, and you're always wondering where that language goes when it's over. You were like, you had constructed this whole fantastic country, you know, and that's a family or a love affair or a relationship with a pet or a friend. And so I think is that, so what place does that have in memoir, you know, or, or truth, you know? And I just think it's so, like, it's so natural to invent and to lie and to make shit up, you know? And it's so like, it's just embedded in reality. So I just felt, I, I really saw, the, because part of it was that just, you know, I went as far as you could with the literal circumstances of this dog and her dying, you know, and so then I had to kind of write a book, you know, and so it just, it wound up being this kind of expanded um, universe, which is, which, which is really fantasy and, and fiction. Um, I mean, I think they, they probably come, the fact is they come out of reality, and so, but again, it's, for me, it's another way to debunk fiction over here, nonfiction over here, poetry <laughs> over here. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Hi. This
this person and then... You're ready, and you've got the mic. Okay, so you two guys next. Was that a question? Uh, yeah. When did I know, or what? How did you, how did you figure out and when um, exactly what like, your message was, or like how, how, how it all came together? Yeah, I mean, there's no one message. Is absolutely the thing. It's all. It's just a cluster of messages that that then you find. I mean, I assemble in an order that feels readable. I mean, readable is a big piece of it because I feel like it's like. You kind of want people to keep turning pages, you know. Like one, I mean, like a, a poet friend of mine, um, Leslie Scalapino, wrote a big fat book of poetry, and it was it had three titles, and it was like Orion, the Return of Painting, and the Pearl, a novel. And I was like, it's poetry. I was like, why did you call this um, a novel? And she said, well, if you call something a novel, people feel compelled to read it from front to back. <laughs> so it was kind of. You know, so I think that there's just an, a need to create an order. But I just think the order kept shuffling until, like, I had an I had an order, like I had an end, like so. There's no meaning, kind of. It's just kind of a nice feeling confection in a way. You know, that was an homage to this dog who I loved. You know, it's like when she started dying, I started writing. You know, and I knew that that's what I needed to do, and I didn't know where it was going to go. And I didn't know what it would have in it. I just knew that there was slowly. I started to refer to something as the dog book, and then it just it kept. I kept asking questions of it, and it kept giving me answers. But um, but even like the end for the longest time was this thing that was just kind of like just another piece of writing that I happened to find that was from the same moment when I lived in San. Like I, I would sit in my backyard in San Diego on this green chase lounge, and I love to write on legal pads. And I was just writing about Rosie, you know, and her condition. And, um, and I just found another piece of it that I didn't know existed. And I thought, that's the end, you know. But it didn't feel right. And then it just for, then much later, I figured out that, like, she had, I had her ashes, you know. And so I decided, like, Provincetown was a place that she discovered swimming. And, she, like, and so I thought, I'll bring her ashes to Provincetown, you know. And so, and I, so I, I had, and I had a friend who also had a dog who had died, and his dog died in a terrible way. And so we decided we would take this walk together that we always took our dogs on, and we would bring her ashes to the end of this road. So I did that, and I recorded our conversation on the way. And then I lost, I have no idea where that is and stuff. And then, so at some point when I was putting the book together, I thought, I'll just make up, oh, in the monastery. I thought, I'll just make up that walk. I'll just act like it's a recording. And I wrote that recording, you know. And then I thought, it just was so obvious that that was the end of the book suddenly. It was like, of course. It, sometimes you don't want to do the obvious thing. I was like, throw the ashes in the water. That's like lame. <laughs> but really, there's nothing to say after that, you know. When the ashes are in the water, you did it, you know. Um, and so I just think it's sort of like there's something uncanny about the way things fall, you know. And that's what you got to find. Um, and then you two guys, and that's probably, we're probably, you. Yeah, my question has to do with the puppets and the complicated in my own head. My question is about the puppets. Yes, <laughs> the, about the puppets. <laughs> um, like in the talk show, uh, like Rosie says something like, I'll be 
Nana's life from this point on will change. And I think my question is, does Rosie have another book? Um, slash, or like, how do you feel like your work is going to change? And I think that's connected to maybe the question that was asked before about fiction, I don't know, fiction and prose, or like making things up, but do you feel like your work is changing since Rosie has passed? Oh, this yeah, this book utterly changed me as a writer. I know for one thing, I can I can make shit up in a way that like I wrote it. I wrote a, wrote a libretto while I was here, and I and it was you know, and I just a libretto it seemed like I had permission to invent things because like you know you have you carry all these rules in your head about what you're what kind of writer you are and what you're allowed to write and what you're not. I mean, I feel like I'm a funny person and I make things up in my life, but I never made that. And I love sci-fi and I love fantasy, but it never was much of a part of my work. You know, and it's somehow this book kind of stretched me. I mean, I think she was very, I mean, like literally she was like, I'm out of here. Let's finish the book. I'm done. So she's had her book. She will not, I don't think she's going to have another book. Um, but but truly, I just feel like I'm much more of a fiction. Like I have ideas for, for you know, like I read a, um, a friend's short story that was kind of, sci-fi and I thought I want to write a screenplay based on this you know and it's just like it's a totally not Eileen idea but I think I'm like a new Eileen you know and I think every work you come out of the book and you're different you just you just figured out something new and then those new chops have a, have to find a new job you know I mean that's the fun of it it's like each each thing changes you each you know every book too it's like you're writing the book and you think you know something about writing a book and you don't know anything about writing this book you know, and I was like, whoa, you know, it's like just like a relationship or anything. You're like, I think I know how to. And it's like, no, I don't. You know, <laughs> and it's like it's and that's great. You know. Did Rosie ever um, tell you how she happened to choose Jethro? <laughs> <laughs> I think she watched TV in the 60s. I think. There was a golden age of television, which was the 60s and 70s, when everybody just, all of America was sitting watching the same damn shows. It was crazy, you know? And so there was a show called The Beverly Hillbillies, and there was this guy called Jethro, and he was sort of like kind of stupid but cute, and I suppose he was sort of the kind of guy I wanted to be when I was like a little girl wanting to be a boy or thinking I was a boy I felt like Jethro and and I guess I, I sort of loved Rosie mocking me and seeing my Jethro you know and it just Jethro would just be this big apey human coming at a dog you know like acting like this is a great thing Jeff you know you would like it's like the way like a female might have to humor a male you know or a dog might have to humor a person so I was that yeah. <laughs> being dumb to a dog was a great gift I think you know is there? I think we, we. I think is a need to. I really would love to. Maybe we can talk. Yeah. Yeah. Can we put it? Thank you. Quickly, I wanted to apologize to you all and apologize to Eileen that we do not have the book here tonight. But I want to urge you and, and promote the book. As Eileen said, it's a book you have to read. So again, it's Afterglow. <laughs> it's on Grove Atlantic, right? It's on Grove. Yes, yes. So please find the book and please buy the book. And holidays are coming. Yeah, yeah right. Ask, ask for yeah, ask for it for a holiday gift. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, next, we'll see you next Wednesday for the, our last of the quarter uh, reading series. Thanks so much. That was amazing. Can I, will you sign this?
Thank you. That was phenomenal. You're so fucking brilliant. I don't understand how you're doing more and more and more and more.